the scripture reading comes from Colossians 4, 2 through 18. And as a warning, there's a lot of weird names that I might get wrong. So just bear with me. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychius will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one with you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Erasticus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision along my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Damas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, good morning again. It's good to be with you and say the scriptures. I'm probably going to get a crick in my neck looking this direction. Uh, there's most of the people have moved that way. This is uh, just free game next week. If you guys want to jump over there, the water is great over there, I hear. Okay. Um, I did, before I begin, want to just publicly thank the people that filled in the pulpit while I was gone. Uh, Roger and Dean and Hudson. Uh, they stepped in, they preached for you, and that was just really encouraging um, for me to listen to. I've been listening to their sermons slowly the last couple of days, and I'm just thankful to have men like them that love me, that love our church, and that love the scriptures, so I'm really thankful for that. Um, and if you missed my comments before the confession of sin, I I'm glad to be back with you. I missed our Sundays together. Um, I worshiped in a bunch of other different churches, which is good for me to do every once in a while, um, but it made me miss this time together, and so I'm thankful to be back with you. Um, and, but I was also glad to get away. So, <laughs> not from you, but uh, from some of the duties and responsibilities, because I was able to rest and reflect, and as you saw, get some eyeglasses that didn't work. So, um, I'm thankful for that. Okay, kidding aside, 
Uh, welcome. I think most of you, if you're newer, uh, we'd love to get to know you to stay afterwards. And if you kind of come every week or come regularly, uh, we're glad that you're here again. And let's hang out afterwards. That's my invitation to, to, to stand around and chat. You can do it inside. You can do it outside. You could do it in a doorway. Um, that would be, we'd love to have you and to hang out. Okay, so our sermon this series, this spring and summer, has been sort of off and on the life of David, as told in the book of 2 Samuel. And uh, we're going to return to that book and to that series next week. Uh, this week, I wanted to do a standalone sermon, and that follows well from what we looked at last week. Last week, Roger preached from most of chapter three of the letter to the Colossians, and I thought I'd preach from most of chapter four from that same letter, which is the end of the letter. Uh, but before I get into our passage this morning, I did want to take a big step back and look at what the letter to the Colossians in general is, and I'm going to be very brief. In a sentence, the book of Colossians is about this. Paul is challenging the church, the church in the first century, and also our church in the 21st century, and he's basically saying this. He's asking us a question. What if Jesus was actually enough? What would our lives look like how would we live if Jesus was actually enough? And I can honestly say that this is a question that for the past couple of months, before and during my time away, I have personally wrestled with, I have personally wrestled against, and even personally wrestled for. So I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about this. It's on my heart. And so before we step into the details of living like Jesus actually gives us what we need, um, I did just want to pray for our time together in God's words to us this morning. So let's do that together. Let's, let's pray. Father, um, thanks for this time. Uh, it is good to be back. Um, it feels in many ways like it's been a while, but in some ways it feels like it's, I just never left. And I'm thankful for this family, this community um, that has borne through so much. <laughs> Just the ups and downs of COVID-19, of social unrest, of political divisions, of um, controversy after controversy in the news cycle, um, and our lives being so disrupted, whether it's employment or moving homes or our neighborhoods or our friend groups. It's just been a tumultuous time and taking a step away reminded me of the rapids we've been, we've been navigating. And I pray that this passage would remind us that um, there are rapids, but it's the same water. That we are in the same stream. And I just pray that, that we would see you, Jesus. Uh, that we would see the ways that you undergird everything. That we live in your love. And Jesus, would you be high and lifted up to the eyes of our hearts? Would you be more believable and beautiful to us as a result of studying your word together? I can't do that, but you can, Spirit, and I pray that you would. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So a few years back, um, there was this sort of unlikely best-selling book, The Life of Pi. And The Life of Pi became a blockbuster, at least a big-budget movie <laughs> called The Life of Pi. Um, and the life of Pi is about a younger man named Pi, he's a boy almost, and he grows up as a zookeeper's son in India, only to get stranded on a lifeboat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with a Bengal tiger named Mr. Parker. I'm not sure if this scene made the movie, but 
One day before the lifeboat and before the tiger, um, while Pai is a child still in India, his family goes on vacation to Munar, India. And Pai, who's a Hindu, wanders into a Christian church in that city, and he meets a priest named Father Martin, and they sit down together and they have tea and biscuits, and they chat. And between nibbles and sips, Pai asks Father Martin a really good question. What is Christianity? <laughs> I'm a Hindu, I know nothing about this building, and what you're about, what is Christianity? And I think Father Martin gives a really good reply. He tells Pi the story of Christianity, the gospel. He talks about how Jesus was stripped naked and whipped and mocked and dragged through the streets and to top it off, crucified at the hands of mere humans to boot. And Pi responds to this story in utter disbelief. He even tries to imagine the story in his life. Pi imagines his father, remember the zookeeper, telling him that the lions in the family zoo have slipped out of their cages and they've killed all the other animals, or most of them at least, llamas, camels, birds, etc. right? And then in his mind's eye, Pi's father tells Pi, his son, the situation has become intolerable. Something must be done. I've decided the only way that the lions can atone for their sins as if I, the father, feed you, the son, to the lions. That's what it sounds like, the Christian story of the gospel sounds like to his Hindu ears. What a downright weird story. What a peculiar psychology, Pi thinks to himself. And so Pi asks Father Martin, he goes, I need another more satisfying story. Do you have something else? Pi thinks, surely this religion has more than one story in its bag. I mean, religions are full of good stories, right? But Father Martin tells Pi this, the stories that came before the gospel story, and there were many, these stories are simply prologue to the Christians. They are trailers to the main movie. Father Martin puts the case simply. Christianity, he says, has one story. And it into this story, we come back again and again, over and over. It is story enough for us. Story enough for us. Father Martin is right, by the way. Uh, one story, the gospel story, is enough for us. And this is what Paul has been at pains to say throughout the book of Colossians. So it's not surprising that his thought is tucked all over his final chapter of this letter. Look, for some here, if we're honest, if we take the time to see it afresh, to hear it again, Christianity may feel like a hard-to-believe story sometimes with a weird and peculiar psychology. But God's grace, the gift of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for us and for the world is enough. And for others here, the gospel story may feel boring to repeat over and over again and again, but we don't need another story. We don't need a more satisfying story. There just simply isn't one out there. 
And this one story is not just enough for the Colossians. It's also what each of us desperately needs. Just look at verse 16. There we're told in our passage the gospel story is not just for Colossae. It's also for Laodicea. And by extension, the gospel story is not just for Laodicea. It's also for Lake Norman. It's for everyone everywhere. So in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18, Paul is speaking into our doubts about Jesus' story. He speaks against our desire for more easy-to-believe, normal stories. And he speaks against our desire for a lesson or a story that feels newer or shinier or more commercial. In our passage today, Paul tells us this truth. Everything, everything that was, everything that is, everything that will come to be, everything is just all about one story. And that one story is all about Jesus. Everything is all about one story and that one story is all about Jesus. And so therefore we pray for Jesus' story, we speak about Jesus' story, and we act out of Jesus' story. And that's really gonna be our outline this morning. So in chapter four, Paul ties our three main responsibilities of living to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. First, verses two through four, tell us to pray for Jesus' story. Verses five through six, we're speaking about Jesus' story. And finally, verses seven through 18, show us how to act out of Jesus' story. So let's look first at verses two through four and how to pray Jesus' story. Very practical. So verse two, Paul begins with telling us how to pray. He says this, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in thanksgiving. There's a ton in that one sentence, but let me just kind of boil it down to two things about prayer to take away. First, prayer is constant and watchful. Well, what does that mean? In another letter, Paul tells us that we're to be constantly praying without ceasing. That is, we don't just pray in the morning, we don't just pray at bedtime, we don't just pray over meals. We're called to pray throughout the day and for those sleepless moments at night. But what is constantly praying and, and kind of watchfully praying even look like? I think the commentator Kent Hughes gives us a great starting place here, right? He says this of constant prayer. It's not so much the speaking of words as the posture of the heart. Constant praying doesn't start with the speaking of words, it starts with the posture of the heart. And what do I mean by heart posture? A heart posture is what we mentally, how we mentally place our lives. How do we conceive of our lives before God? Do we take the situations and the events and the relationships of the day, and how do we remind our hearts in the midst of those, those relationships and those events and those situations? How do we refresh our souls with that one Christian story of the gospel? We pray for forgiveness, for instance, when we leave a conversation where we were manipulative or self-serving. And we pray for courage in that next conversation, whether it's with a family member or a business meeting. We pray for these things because Jesus righteously lived for us so we don't have to get every relationship exactly right. We can cry out to God 
about the hurts and the sorrows of life right when they're happening, right after they're happening, years after they happened. Because Jesus died for us and he gets firsthand how hard and how bloody this life can be. And we can rejoice with God. We can just shout out praise and joys and about the successes of life and joys of life. Why? Because Jesus rose again for us to prepare a place, a perfect future with no more tears. Do you see how all of our lives can be prayed within this one story framework? Even in this nonstop busyness of toddlers, of iPhone push notifications, of other people's demands on our time, of personal crises, we can practice the presence of God. In the unquiet times, listen, how, listen to how Brother Lawrence, a cook who wrote a book by that title, The Practice of the Presence of God, this is how he puts it. The time of business does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and the clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were upon my knees. That's the goal. So once again, constant prayer is an attitude of the heart, not a perfect circumstance. Otherwise, we couldn't do this, right? How else could we pray in the midst of the clatter of demands, even in our workplace, whether that's the home or an office, or maybe both these days? <laughs> Mixed, depending on the hybrid situation, okay? So look, we can do these things in the long summer days because there's an attitude of the heart. Second element of prayer. Paul stresses that prayer often ends in thanksgiving. So prayer is watchful and constant, but it also ends in thanksgiving. Here in verse two, Paul's implying that prayer is a process. It's not just an event that we do. We ask for things, yes, but then we look for answers to these requests. And then when these answers appear, we give thanks to God. Let me just give you a very simple application of this, okay? Very simple. Try making a place where you write down answered prayers. And this isn't like rocket science, but this is for a season of my life, this was really helpful for me. I just had a piece of paper and I folded it up and stuck it in my Bible and on one side of the paper in one column, was a prayer request, just a note form. And on the other side, and the other column, was a place for the prayer to be answered. And it was amazing to look and see how many of those were actually answered because I started to look for the answers to prayer. A friend, uh, a friend of mine, Kate, was converted to Christianity through this practice. Not exactly with a notebook piece of paper, but she asked for a very small thing that she thought was impossible for God. And she saw God give her that very thing and that changed her life. Another friend of mine, Phil Hissom, keeps a book and every time God answers a prayer, it's logged in the book. And that book is called The Mighty Acts of God in the Hissom Household. <laughs> Maybe we could all have a little <laughs> giant tube like that. You see, keeping track in whatever way we can of prayer requests and those times when specific prayers get answered specifically this builds up not just our faith, but also our gratitude. And we can show our doubts about when and where God actually shows up. We can show those doubts 
up close and personal places. We can look back and go, well, that's super helpful. Because we can do this, we can record our prayers. We can expect in faith God to answer prayers because the gospel story tells us that it's not about God uh, not caring enough. God cares so much that he didn't even spare his own son, Jesus. What is a parking space, a friendship, an interview, a sense of peace compared to that ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on a cross for those who believe? That's the logic of the scriptures about prayer. And we get to see how practical Paul is being and is trying to be. He's telling us how to pray, but he's actually also telling us what to pray for. And that actually, if we're honest, is maybe the harder question for a lot of us. It's not how to pray, it's what to pray for. In verses three and four, Paul asks us to include in our prayers the gospel story, that the gospel story is told and received well. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word of God. We need to pray because God often chooses to, to work through our prayers. And God has to be the one who opens the doors of opportunity. Opportunities that the Christian story is to be told and received in people's hearts and minds. And so again, a simple question, is that something that we're praying for? Sometimes I fail even to pray for that. But verses five and six, and our second point, are not just to pray, right? We're also to tell the gospel story. We're not just to pray for the gospel story, we're to tell the gospel story. So which is it? Prayer or conversation? God's work or our work? That's a false choice, by the way. Um, you know, God is saying it's both. It's both prayer and conversation. It's our work and God's work. You see, God works through interlocking causes in life. He's a both and God, not an either or. And so God uses our prayers and our words for the gospel story to be received. And this is exactly why Paul doesn't need to just tell Christians how to pray. He also needs to tell us how to act and to speak especially to people who don't know the gospel or don't know how precious or why the gospel even matters. But I want you to notice in verses five and six, uh, just when we want it, God, through Paul, refuses to give us a technique. Where's my formula? Where's my set script of exactly what to say and when to say it and who to say it to always and forevermore and everyone? It's not there. Instead, verse six asks us to be relational, to treat individuals well as individuals, right? To, you know, individually. Here's how he puts it. To know how you ought to answer each person, each individual person. God cares about our conversations with people who disagree. And he cares that we have good conversations. Not just that we have conversations. And you see, as much as some Christians seem to favor it, God doesn't think we should relate to people like plug and chug, find the formula of mathematics. He wants us to care about people like he cares about them, deeply and intimately and personally. To care enough to find the right time 
and the right place. Verse five, wisdom, to talk about the essential things in a wise way, specific to the person, specific to the situation, to have the courage to ask hard questions and have the courage to give honest personal answers in the context of ongoing friendship, to know and to be known well, to have talks that are grounded in listening. I mean, think about the word answer in verse six. That implies we need to actually listen to another person's question before we speak sometimes. That's an answer. Allow me to give a very personal example of why all this maybe matters. It's from my life. As some of you know, I did not grow up Christian. I was really not familiar at all with Christianity or the one story of the gospel. But when I was in college, I started to hang out with Christians uh, who are public Christians for the very first time. Maybe I had known a Christian or two, but I didn't know that they were Christian until after I became Christian. That was kind of the life I lived in. Um, and so this was a new thing for me to hang out with people that were Christian. And I wasn't Christian at the time. And one day I was hanging out in a Christian friend's dorm room in college. And when uh, he and another friend all of a sudden, quite suddenly changed the course of conversation. <laughs> and they began telling me about Jesus. And they asked me if I thought Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. It felt like a drill. I felt, I felt the whole air of the room suck out. And look, the liar, lunatic, lord question, very good argument from C.S. Lewis to take seriously who Jesus is, that he can't just be a good teacher according to what he says about himself. Um, but I was pretty frustrated by that conversation. And I'll tell you why. I felt ambushed and I never felt heard. I never felt heard. They never asked me personal questions about what I thought or what I believed. They never asked me whether I actually believed, for instance, what Jesus said about himself in the Bible. The liar, lunatic, Lord argument doesn't work unless you believe that Jesus said that about himself, right? And so it's only later through a series of more personal conversations, deeper conversations with my Christian roommate about his faith and my doubts that I became a Christian. And I think my experience is what Paul's speaking to in verse six, at least in part. My college roommate spoke with salt. He chose to speak, which is important. Some of us struggle even with that step, but he spoke, he spoke with salt, honest and interesting about Jesus. He got me thirsty to know the kind of rescue he had. And he was gracious. He was interested in hearing me out. He was patient with me and my doubts and my concerns. I didn't feel like a project to him. I felt like a person and a friend. That meant the world. And it meant, in many ways, God used that for my salvation. And this adjective, gracious, points to our third and final point, the power of the story we are part of. Jesus' story, the gospel story, the story of grace changes us. Grace. Grace, grace, God's gift that cost him everything. Grace, the always and forever love of God he showed us in Jesus. Grace, it's not about being good. It's not about being good at being good. It's not about trying, it's about trusting. Grace is him taking my wrongs and me getting his rights. Grace is like us punching God in the nose, mostly because we don't like him, and then God not hitting us in return, nor God merely turning the other cheek, but God giving us a billion dollars because he likes Jesus in us. It makes no earthly sense 
It's beautiful. It's good. It's true. And this small little word, grace, means so very much to me and to Paul and to God. The letter of Colossians begins with the word grace, chapter 1, verse 2, and it now ends with the verse grace, the word grace, chapter 4, verse 18. God's grace is the word made flesh, Jesus, and he dwells among us. He dwelled among us. Throughout this letter to the Colossians, he dwells, and throughout the whole of Bible, the Bible too. It's what we talk about every Sunday. We do that on purpose. We do that on purpose. Grace is the story that North Cross will come back to again and again, over and over intentionally. And now that we've defined grace, what does grace look like in action? And this is where verses 7 through 17 come in. They show us, they demonstrate the transforming power of grace in real lives like our own. Let's do this really briefly. Let's look at one story of Jesus' grace and just one person listed in this end section. Look, I could each name that Paul rattles off has a story behind it, a rich, powerful story of God's grace attached to it, but I'm just gonna focus on one name and one story. John Mark, Mark's name in verse 10. And this is what verse 10 says. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. That seems boring. Okay, some instructions, you know. Okay, make sure to host Mark, bring out the casserole and the Kool-Aid, along with a dozen other people Paul mentions. Got it. Check. But Mark's relationship with Paul is anything but boring. In the book of Acts chapter 13, Mark ditched Paul and Barnabas in the middle of a missionary journey. He left Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas high and dry. Mark took off for home like Linus in search of his blankie. And Mark did not look back at the bugs or the stormy seas or the angry mobs of people. He was done. Okay, so we don't know exactly why Mark left, but that's my guess. But in the discussion two chapters later in Acts 15, hints that he didn't leave for a very good reason, right? He was probably scared and tired, homesick and full of doubts. And Mark quit what he thought was the varsity Christian squad with Paul and Barnabas, his cousin. And when he got home, he probably thought, well, that chapter of my life is over. God's really never going to work with me and through me again. And maybe even Mark thought God was mad at him and had stopped caring about his life. But God's in the business of chasing after his put out cranky children. When we get scared or discouraged or tired, when we want to quit, and we sometimes do quit, this is exactly when God redoubles his efforts to seek after us. We hide, he seeks. We run, he runs faster. And that's just what God did with Mark. And that's exactly what he will do with you if you believe in him. And even when your belief feels like quitting. Jesus chases after you in the paralyzing stress of your life, of work or wild children or throbbing loneliness. Jesus chases after you when you love your friends or your family or your job more than you love Jesus. Jesus chases after you when you feel like cutting or you feel like clicking on that internet link you shouldn't click on again. And you feel like eating a whole gallon of ice cream out of the carton on the kitchen floor, screaming inside, just leave me alone. He loves you then, he chases you then. 
Jesus chases you and he chases me when Christianity feels so tough. And we wonder why we signed up for this with these people. And we're scared. Everyone's going to find out that we stink at love. We stink at church. We stink at the whole spiritual thing. And Jesus chases after you and me, even when we think everyone else is the problem. There are terrible friends or awful coworkers. What a wretched human being. That person's not even probably Christian. And Jesus chases after you and us and people like Mark in ordinary yet extraordinary ways. Verse 10, Paul, the same person that Mark abandoned and betrayed so badly. This Paul asked the Colossians to throw Mark a big throwdown of a party when he arrives. Paul tells the Colossians, let's make it special for Mark. A welcome home, we're so glad you're here party. And I can imagine that Paul singing to himself as he writes that, he's looking into their raised eyebrows. And I can imagine Paul says something like this. Don't worry. Jesus has already footed the bill. He has paid the over-the-top outrageously expensive social, emotional, and spiritual price. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. And so God, in his grace, through Paul, took the same mark, that mark who gets scared, and he sometimes quits, <laughs> that Paul goes on to become, in Paul's own, that mark comes, goes on to become, in Paul's own words, useful to God's ministry. 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. Mark, that same Mark, knock-kneed Mark, writes a book in the Bible, the book of Mark. Yes, the same JV Mark is picked for all-time varsity squad in Jesus. That's crazy. And you know, that's so crazy. This kind of grace is so nuts that it's, and it's told in such a simple but peculiar story that it can feel so offensive if we're listening. And it shouldn't surprise us then that a little boy in India named Pai hears Father Martin tell him one story is enough and he immediately launches into three accusations. <laughs> First accusation, Pai says that a God should put up with adversity, I can understand, but humiliation, death, I can't even imagine. Why would God wish that taint and stench of death upon himself? Why make dirty what is beautiful? Why spoil what is perfect? Father Martin answers, love. Pi says it again. This son is God, a God on too human a scale. That's what. His miracles are card tricks. His best transportation is a regular old donkey. He died just three hours, measly hours with moans and gasps and laments. What kind of God is that? Where, what is there to inspire in this son? And Father Martin answers once again, love. Pi in his final outbursts asked Father Martin, and this son appears only once long ago, far away among an obscure tribe in a backwater of West Asia on the confines of a long van, van vanished empire, this God is ungenerous, 
He's unfair. What could justify such divine stinginess? And Father Martin again and finally answers, love. Love is Jesus taking on humiliation and death for his people. Love is Jesus coming and finding us where we're hiding. God on too human a scale. Love is Jesus living a single human life once, long ago, far away, so that by his grace and our faith, we get his rights and he gets our wrongs on a cross. The answer to life, the answer to how we live, whether it's praying or speaking or acting, the answer is always and forever the same. Jesus' love. Jesus' love and his life and his death and his resurrection. If we had another story, if there's a story more holy, more inspiring, more generous, I would tell you it. If there's a better answer out there for what we need and for what the world needs, I haven't heard it. And in many ways, my whole life has been looking for it. You see, life is not primarily about what you work at or how hard you work or how great people think you are. Everything is all about Jesus and Jesus' love. His love for you, his love for me, whoever and wherever we are. Would you pray with me? Father, help our unbelief. This is such a beautiful story. And, but some of us are in the middle of it. We can look back and we can see the ways that you've dotted the I's or crossed the T's of, of hurt. But some of us are mid-loop. We're wondering, are you going to show up? Are you going to heal me the way I want? The way I need? And Father, be with those people especially. Be with us especially. And I pray that you, at the same time, would also encourage us in our restlessness, in our um, wanting to know what's the new, new thing. You'd remind us of the old ancient paths, the story, the old, old story, and that we gather around to hear it. And would it ever be fresh to us? Would we never get over the head over heels love you have for us? And would it change our very lives? Jesus, would you meet us where we are? And would you push us by your love to look more and more like you? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.